Welcome to Black Diplomats Podcast, where everybody can be a diplomat. I'm your host, Terrell Starr, and today's show theme will focus on U.S. white supremacy and Russian colonialism and how Ukrainian and Black American activists can fight these systems of oppression together. And for that topic, I have two very special guests with me today who will be discussing several news items of the week with that theme in mind. Um, We have... Latasha Brown, who's the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, one of the most important and impactful voter engagement and civil rights organizations in America. And we have Marina Prohotko, who's a board member at Razum, one of the biggest Ukrainian-American organizations in the U.S. that does a lot of work to advocate for Ukrainian issues here in the United States and abroad. I'm so happy to have you both on the show. How y'all doing? Good. It's good to be here, Terrell, both, with both of you. Likewise. Yeah, 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 definitely. So before I get into the show topics of the day, I want to check on everybody's mental health. It's something that I do on every show because we talk about these really heavy topics. Uh, you know, we're, we're all trying to save the world in one way or the other, but we never check in with each other. So um, Marina, you know, you're in Kiev, my favorite city on earth, and um, you're you're born and raised in Kiev and uh, moved over to the States, but you're, you're back home. I just want to ask you, how does it feel to be back? Feels wonderful. Um, there's a phenomenon amongst uh, Ukrainians that are abroad uh, after the full-scale invasion that you feel much more at peace and much more at ease when you're in Ukraine. Um, when you're back in Ukraine, and that's definitely the case, even though I only arrived six o'clock in the morning today, which is only about 12 hours ago, <laughs> and I've already um, delivered 250 first, uh, first aid kits to the National Police Service of Ukraine. Uh, but, uh, you know, mentally, I'm, I'm a little bit still flying around, um, but I'm, I'm happy to, to be here. Yeah. Right on, Latasha. Listen, um, I like having you on the show because a lot of people don't know that you very much have a global uh, mindset about a lot of things. And a lot of people don't talk to you about it, which is why I'm happy to have you on the show. But, you know, I'm jumping ahead. But how are you doing, Latasha? I'm just saying this because I'm so happy to see you. And I've been we know each other. We go back and I've, I've written about you many times. Thank you for having me. One, I want to say, Miranda, I am so um just to be able to share space with you as you are in key, that in itself um, is really special. Um, prayers for your family and those that you love and all those that are literally standing uh, for justice and to protect your community, your culture, and your people. And so I want to just, um, being able to share space with you today and be engaged in this conversation, um, I think that encapsulates how I feel right now. I feel very blessed. Uh, it is a, it has been like you, it's been a challenging, this has been a really challenging period and a very challenging period in my life. Um, I've had a, a, a major loss. I lost my only child four months ago. And so I sympathize and empathize with, um, with those who are literally moving and working and building and maintaining love through pain. And so I think that ultimately diplomacy is not really about politics. I say this often to real, as you know, but I think true tr- uh, diplomacy should be propelled by our deep sense and love of humanity. And so 
just being able to share that space and be in conversation with you all about what I think is um, supersedes the political. It is the humanism um, in this moment and where we find ourselves. So thank you for asking. And I guess I want to put it back on you since you are hosting and creating this space for us. How are you doing, my brother? How are you? I'm I'm doing well. Um, I'm in the first year of being independent, not working for anyone and uh, trying to figure out how to get a business going and going through the ups and downs and growing through it. And I'm feeling I'm feeling really good. I'm working on a book deal uh, that's going to be finalized in the next couple of weeks. And by the way, I just want to let you all know what it is. It's called a black man's guide to Eastern Europe. <laughs> for whoever's going to get it. And so about more than a third of it is devoted to Ukraine. And I, I'm just really happy that I'm able to live in my purpose. And we deal with all this heavy stuff, but I really feel it's in my heart to do what you're talking about, Latasha, which is it's about the, humani the humanitarian component to things. And that's what makes my work different from the typical person who talks about Ukraine and who talks about Eastern Europe. I'm really invested in how we all as human beings can fight systems of oppression together because I feel like we're stronger together. And I think that requires the type of conversations that we're having right now where we're sitting and we're in dialogue about what does fighting oppression mean to us and what does the ultimate goal mean, which is how can we be together? It's something that I think about every single day. Um, you know, I, I think about that all the time and, I, you know, and so I'm, I'm very invested in that. And when I'm not doing that, um, I'm, I'm learning how to swim. So I oh, have that's interesting. Lesson. I'm getting ready to take swimming lessons again. I was just saying that I, I will prop, I'm probably proficient enough where I won't drown. Um, but I have this terrible fear of water. And one of the pieces that um, I want to take on this year um, there were three things. One, I want to speak a different language. I want to learn a new language. So, um, Martin, uh, I might I, I might need your help. <laughs> um, um, or Terrell, because you speak um, you speak multiple languages, right? Um, I secondly, I want to learn how to swim. I really want to be comfortable with my body and water and release the fear of it, um, and then learn how to play golf. So I know that's a one off, but yeah. No, right on, because I have a swim coach that's in the Padil neighborhood of Kiev. So when I'm there, I take the lessons there as well. So I think that's something, you know, just taking care of our bodies is, a, is an important thing because we all do a lot of work that's very much in our head. And we are very cerebral in our um, in, in our focus. And so I think it's great that we're taking care of our bodies as often as we are exercising our minds. I think that's a very essential thing. So, you know, we were talking about humanity, right? So let's let's just get started into the show with this fuckery that's going on at the United Nations, right? So uh, Russia is assuming the chairmanship of the United Nations Security Council. So for everybody that doesn't know, each month, a member state gets to take turns assuming the role of chair. And they get to set the agenda. And so this month, it's been Russia, the country that's carried out war crimes and genocide against Ukraine. Uh, and keep in mind that they invaded Ukraine for a second time in eight years back into back in 2022, uh, February. So 
you know, the, the U.S. and the EU member states didn't send their foreign ministers to this meeting, as is the custom anytime a foreign minister leads a meeting. Uh, but they did send their U.N. ambassadors. So I just want to play a snippet of what the U.N. General Secretary Antonio Guterres and U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield told uh, Russian foreign foreign ambassador, Russian foreign ambassador, I'm sorry, Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov um, as he took the helm of the uh, 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 of the Security Council. So we're going to play that that clip now. Secretary General Antonio Guterres stated plainly that Moscow's invasion ran contrary to the United Nations mission. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in violation of the United Nations Charter and international law is causing massive suffering and devastation to the country and its people and adding to the global economic dislocation triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic. And the U.S. envoy, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, went further. Our hypocritical convener today, Russia, invaded its neighbor, Ukraine, and struck at the heart of the U.N. Charter. Thomas-Greenfield also accused Russia of violating international law by wrongfully detaining Americans, calling for the release of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich and ex-Marine Paul Whelan. Whelan's sister, Elizabeth, was in the chamber on Monday. And I want Minister Lavrov to look into her eyes and see her suffering. Yeah, so listen, in response, Lavrov said, and this is according to the New York Times, let's call a spade a spade. Nobody allowed the Western minority to speak for all of humankind. They need to be polite and respect all members of the international community. And he said this, you know, long and wide-ranging speech that touched on a number of things, including Western involvement in conflicts, including the wars in Iraq and Libya. Now, if we want to keep it a buck, he's not particularly <laughs> wrong about that. And the nuclear bombs that dropped on Japan in World War II. But the bottom line is that it's the pot calling the, 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 the kettle black, and it speaks to a larger conversation about how broken this UN structure is because you have a, a body that allows a country that's actively committing war crimes to be at the helm of a body that's supposed to do the direct opposite in stopping those war crimes. So here's a question for y'all. Um, should Russia be kicked off of the Security Council? Uh, Marina, I'll start with you. Uh, for better or for worse, the answer is pretty simple. The answer is yes. Um, not only should Russia be kicked off of the Security Council, they should be taken out of the United Nations as a whole. Um, but uh, no matter you know how into the details and into the weeds you get about this particular topic, because at any given moment, especially amongst Ukrainians and uh, diplomats and people that are interested in the topic of the United Nations and how it works and functions in particular, you'll get like a bunch of different uh, very um, minutia arguments about why it should or why it should not be kicked out or removed from the United Nations. Um, the, the bottom line really is that right now there are several major issues coming to the helm in the world right now. And one of them is how out of date and out of touch the United Nations is. 
um, in addition to climate change, in addition to growing social inequity around the world, in addition to, um, you know, uh, the economies of uh, major developed countries failing, so on and so forth. You can keep going down the list, but the United Nations for a very long time now, at least for the last 30 years, has been unable to deal with reality. The world order that was put together after World War II is no longer relevant, and there needs to have been major reform started at least 30 years ago, and it just wasn't. Um, and I mean, I, I agree with your comment, Terrell, actually, that, uh, you know, it's not wrong to say that the United States is also implicated in major war crimes and the, the starting initiation of uh, several wars that probably should not have happened and have left uh, several countries, communities around the world in a worse shape than they were before. Um, but the existence of one imperialist power and one, um, you know, power abusing its uh, stance in the United Nations or the Security Council does not exclude another one from also existing at the same time. So if we are, as a global community, intent on, you know, fulfilling the uh, the goals and visions of the United Nations that were set forth after World War II, then not only do we need to uh, bring Russia to accountability, but also China and also the United States and also Iran and also any number of other uh, countries around the world that have been kind of just skating by for a very long time and not feeling uh, like they should even pay attention to uh, their membership in the United Nations. So I think the issue is just much larger. Um, and it would be, you know, if I can speak from my personal capacity as a Ukrainian, I would be more than happy if Russia were to be made an example and kicked out of the United Nations and the Security Council for their uh, war crimes in Ukraine and for their the conduction of genocide within Ukraine. I think this would send a very strong message and would, for the first time in a long time, um, help the United Nations actually fulfill uh, its promises to the world and its its duty to protect the world from such things. Latasha, yeah. what are your thoughts about this? You know, Terrell, I don't know if there's much that I can add. I thought, I just thought, um, I, I let me just say ditto, 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 because I do think that there are two, um, there are two issues. I think one, yes, there's this question, this fundamental question of um, given this notion of each of the nation states that are at on a part of the Security Council are able, they, they, you know, they rotate the leadership. This is their rightful. This is the time that um, Russia is to serve, and we're going to let them serve. And and I think that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is that we've put process over people and principle. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, a country that is actually is waged a full fledged genocidal attack on people should in no way be not leading just around a security um, conversation, but there should be major consequences, right? That says that that along with your responsibility, if you are being if you are a part of a security council, right, that is supposed to be a part of the body um, to think about um, uh, the security of nation states um, overall, then how is it that you can um, uh, be able to just invade another's, uh, another nation state and there's no repercussions for that? So I think that Number one, I, 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 
the whole, I think that the fact that we're in this position, we are asking this question right now, is the evidence that the current system and, and, and paradigm, you know, the, the infrastructure is just antiquated. It does no longer serve the needs of what? And then I think the second question, which is a larger question, I think that brings the U.S. and the others. Like at the end of the day, you've got a security council that actually appointed themselves the police, the police council of the world. Right. I don't think any of them at that table, quite frankly, <laughs> have the right to decide that they are the ones that are going to police the rest of the world. Although I think that there are some things given in the position and I think the, the concept of having a united nations, I am completely in support of and in favor of there being a global stage. The challenge is what we've not seen from that body, particularly in recent years, is that a structure that would hold those who have the most power accountable. What it seems is that that there's been this, you see these states that these nation states that quite frankly are the wealthiest, in some instances the whitest, and part of that is they have actually um, secured their position of authority and a power um, over uh, with with genocide, <laughs> through war, through violence, through white supremacy. I mean, we've got to really be able to unpack um, how that those that are members of the uh, Security Council um, deem themselves the powers over the Security Council in the first place. So I think the very notion and the very vehicle itself is to be questioned. And I think that great gets to a greater question that at the end of the day, if we're really saying that we're in this global, we're in this global political, um, this socio um, economic political system, that if we are literally creating a platform that is supposed to lend itself for nation states to interact, I would say that some of the largest nations, um, including our own, have not been really good stewards at that. They've actually deemed themselves um, giving themselves the bully pulpit, you know, and deem themselves very author authoritarian in many ways. And so. Right. You know, so, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. So look, here's here's some context. Right. Because I, I want people to really think about we about how should we as citizens respond to these types of things. So there are five permanent members of the Security Council with veto power. All right. So it's the it's France, which is a which has long been a colonial power and engages in widespread and continues to express engage in widespread imperialism. A lot of the issues that are going on with Haiti, which does not have uh, currently um, elected leadership. Uh, France was its colonizer and left it for broke and continues to do so. Uh, you have the Russian Federation, which has a very similar genocidal history when it comes to destroying, you know, to killing off its indigenous people as the United States of America, as, as we as this country has killed off its its indigenous uh, uh, population as it grew into the nation that we know today. You have Great Britain. We know that they are uh, a colonizing land. And then you have China, which is engaging in this own form of imperialism. And then you have the United States. And we know all about that, you know, about our own country's um, issues with, with 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 colonialism, imperialism and the um, in, in all of the white supremacy that's happening today. So the 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 the, the council's uh, veto member powers are some of the biggest perpetrators of violence in human history. I mean, just 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 think about that. And so I think that when we're thinking about structures 
as people, what we really need to do is think about what new models should we have, right? And what new ways of peace should we should, should we move forward with? And I think what, how you know we'll get more into uh, you know the, the intersections of looking at Russian colonialism and white supremacy is that the the old guard in regards to who's determining how the world works needs to be replaced, right? Because we because ultimately foreign policy, is very similar to urban policy or urban planning and that a city, a community, all of it is planned. The world is the same thing. And so after World War II, the, you know, the irony of the UN is that it was supposed to be a space where we all were to get together to figure out peace, but the people who are the peacemakers were the warmongers. <laughs> so 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 let's just just yeah so 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 let's just think you know I just wanted to close in on that but in regards to Sergey Lavrov I mean you know he you know him calling the kettle black in regards to how the West is determining you know the outcomes of the rest of the world he is not necessarily any better and it was right for him to be called out in that regard so let's go on into some domestic news so uh, let, let's talk about the aftermath of the uh, expulsion of two state house representatives in Tennessee who eventually were returned to their roles on an interim basis. So I want to give you all some background and why this is important for a global conversation. Uh, so three, um, three nine-year-olds and three adults were killed in a shooting in a private uh, grade school in Nashville last month. And if you don't know, the U.S. has an out-of-control gun epidemic, and we lead the world in gun-related deaths. And so in response to this, in response to this, this shooting that took place in this private school in Nashville, hundreds of protesters entered the House and Senate chambers of, of the Tennessee legislature on March 30th, demanding that lawmakers pass strong gun reform laws. And so in response to that, Representatives Justin Pearson, Justin Jones, and Representative Gloria Johnson uh, uh, Gloria Johnson is white. She stopped. Uh, they all stopped the uh, proceedings on the floor because they were going through a number of bills that day and they ended up joining the protest. And so Jones and Pearson in particular led chants through a bullhorn as legislature legislators uh, instituted a recess. And this is all according to CBS News. Now, here's the response. The GOP led assembly responded by calling for the legislature's uh, legislators uh, expulsion. Jones and Pearson, who are black, they ended up being expelled after the assembly uh, 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 came together for a vote, while Johnson, who was white, she survived the expulsion by one vote. Now, those two lawmakers were eventually reappointed to their positions on an interim basis by their local boards. And VP Harris met with the lawmakers in Nashville before they traveled to the White House to meet President Joe Biden. Here's what he had to say about their heroic acts um, in, in, in Tennessee. Well, it's an honor to have you all to be here. It really is. And uh, I know you got a chance. The vice president went down to see you. I'm sorry I couldn't be with her at the time. But, uh, you know, if you stand up for our kids, you're standing up for our communities, safe communities, and democratic values. That's what it's all about. And all, all three of you speak so well about why you're doing what you did and why you continue to do it. Look, uh, what the Republican legislature did was shocking, it was undemocratic, and it was um, without any precedent. 
but you turn it around very quickly. So here's why this is unusual, right? And this, again, this is according to CBS News. In Tennessee, just eight lawmakers have been expelled from the House in the past. Now, six of those uh, lawmakers were Confederates who were expelled in the 19th century for refusing to affirm the citizenship of formerly enslaved black people. In the 20th century, uh, a legislator was expelled after being convicted of bribery. And in 2016, a member was expelled for sexual misconduct. Uh, before the vote uh, that, that, that ousted uh, the lawmakers initially, Jones, one of the lawmakers, he listed other lawmakers who have acted unprofessionally or have been investigated for misconduct, but they weren't expelled from the legislature. And he basically called these votes an extreme measure that's an attempt to silence and undo the will of over 200,000 Tennesseans uh, represented by that trio. So, Latasha, I want to ask you, you know, about this. America spends so much time talking about democracy abroad, but we have so much work to do here in our own country, don't we? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, it's interesting because I am, you know, I think that there, we often look at life sometimes, I think, in the in this media uh, um, space and platform as is a zero sum game. And, and the truth of the matter is there is what I believe, I don't think that there's a perfect democracy on earth, right? But I also don't think that things that currently exist are not all bad either. And so I think that it's a matter of how do we balance and build off what has worked and throw away, discard, or evolve from what doesn't work. And so, you know, I think on, um, I think there are some elements of democracy in um, in this country that I actually believe that the whole notion, you know, the, the, the goal would be for us to put a system in place that realizes it. But this whole notion that you have a government of the people, for the people, by the people, I think it's a very noble kind of, um, um, goal, right? Um, what we have not, what we see is a misalignment oftentimes around the systems that literally support that notion that all people are created equal and are protected equally under the law. We know that is not the case in this nation. I think that um, to see, I think part of what was beautiful about that process to see these three people in Tennessee is that there's some level of them. I think that's how democracy works. Uh, you know, some level of their um, their protests, some level of their um, even bouncing back that there was were vehicles and people who organized to make sure that they would be back in position. You know, but I also think that what you see is I think it's interesting. I think you see this dichotomy that we're working through. You see the weaknesses of of this democratic system, and then you also see some of what I think are some of the strengths of some of the things to pull from, because the truth of the matter is if, if your first amendment rights, then we're in a country that says you have first amendment rights. Now, how are you punitive, uh, penalized, penalized um, and kicked out when you were actually, when you look at those three people, they represent 200,000 voices, 200,000 people in their district collectively. So here you have, you have legislators that are saying something that is deeply disturbing, that are pushing something where, where there was this mass murder, like like uh, what we're seeing, where, where you're seeing, um, where you saw the school shooting, not mass murder, I'm sorry, the school shooting that ultimately they were responding to. And so I agree. I think that part of, 
you know, what we are learning and growing. I, I, I think that in this nation, that democracy can't just be a, a buzzword, that we have to really think of it as a real principal value. And I think that's where we see the misalignment oftentimes. Um, but I do believe that there's elements of that that exist. And I think oftentimes when you see those elements, how they exist and how strong the democracy is, is how, how do you see people that are part of that democracy, how are they able to engage, shape, change, evolve, abolish those systems? That is the test of whether your democracy is strong or not. Right. I want to touch on that. So a couple things. I was going to teach at a at a university in Odessa before the war started. <laughs> and I forgot the name of the university. And I was going to be teaching um, race and journalism. That was going to be the course. It was it was going to be through a Fulbright scholar program. And I was going to be <laughs> teaching these Ukrainians in Odessa about all the things that we're talking about right now. And, and I was invited and I was, and I was excited about it because oftentimes I'm usually the only black person that a lot of folks get to talk to just like really on a consistent basis. Not that, you know, Ukrainians, I'm not met black people. I'm not saying that what I'm saying is that when you get in these professional arena environments, where you're dealing with politics, right? Or dealing with foreign policy. If you're in these think tank worlds, it's not a lot of black people there. And I am the person that talks about these fractures and sayings and saying and things that, hey, these are some areas we need to work on. Because so often what I find myself uh, contending with is that you're usually dealing with people who travel, who travel abroad, who represent America, but are not impacted by some of the shortcomings of the country that people like you, Latasha, have been advocating your life to fight against. And so you're right about the democracy thing. And another thing is that every this this reminds me of a black man, his name is Homer Smith, who went to Russia in the 1930s. And is that the book, The story. Black Russian? Is that the book? No, the, the, what's the book The Black Russian is named after? It's a couple of them. Um, it's it's a number of them. No, well, there's a book I'm called con- The Black Russian. I thought that was it. Yeah, I think that's one of them. I think there's a book called The Black Russian, but I think the one I, the one I'm referring to, I think it's called Black on Red. Okay. Right. Okay. And so that's what. But this is an old book that was written back like in the ooh like 40s, 50s, or something like that. But the story out of it was that Homer Smith worked as a freelance journalist in in Moscow, and he spent a year working at a Russian English outlet. Right, and so. Back then, they had the printing presses where, you know, they didn't have, all you know, you know, real old analog back in the day. And so for whatever reason, the person who handled the press didn't come in that day. And Homer Smith, the black man, said, I can run the press. And this Russian who was conditioned to believe that Americans were going through all this stuff, which we were. Right. But it was also a part of the propaganda campaign to say that, hey, we could treat you better than your own country, even though the Russians around that year starved, you know, millions of Ukrainians and killed a whole bunch of people. Another story, right? But, you know, um, this Russian was really shot by Homer Smith and asked, why are you able to work this press? I thought that you were such an oppressed people that you didn't know, you didn't have these skills. And then Homer Smith said that there are hundreds of black, um, black 
newspapers around the country and in in a country that does not have you know freedom of speech you know that was the soviet union um a colonizing state like that he was shocked to, to hear that there were hundreds of african-american newspapers that were active and vibrant during the jim crow era and so it speaks to your point latasha that as for all of the issues that we have in this country we definitely have um it is we definitely have a solid foundation to work on right and it you just made me think about that but marina you know people ask me do i feel safe when i'm in ukraine <clears throat> and i tell them i don't have to worry about anybody shooting me right and you I, I i've gone i've walked around kiev at all times of the night never had to worry about gun violence you'll deal with somebody you know with you know everything is coming down the fist but i never had to worry about that so what do you think about this gun violence epidemic that we have uh here in the united states and how different it is from ukraine i know you're a u.s citizen but i know that you also were in you know you you, you were born in a country that don't have all these mass shootings like we do which is the majority of countries around the world right <laughs> um, <laughs> um i mean it's funny that you mention uh safety uh in this conversation because just recently i had a conversation with uh, a man from Florida who is really into numbers and he was he crunched some numbers about um, how safe, uh, statistically speaking, Ukrainians, displaced Ukrainians uh, who arrive in the United States should feel compared to how they should feel in Ukraine if they had chosen to stay in Ukraine or could have stayed in Ukraine. Um, and he found that, you know, I'm, I can't speak to exactly what his algorithms were, but he told me that um, actually uh, based on uh, gun violence in Ukraine, um, in the United States, based on a number of, you know, the, the likelihood of being subject to any type of other um, high crime and violence in the United States and how probable it is that it happens to a person on any given day under any given conditions. He found that for a displaced Ukrainian uh, in the United States, they are much less safe in the United States as compared to if they had stayed in Ukraine where there is an active invasion going on, which I think is is pretty mind blowing. I mean, it's really not it's it's just another way of looking at it, but um it's it's you not think? surprising. Ooh, <laughs> it's really not surprising because uh I mean if we're talking about Ukraine, um uh it you know you can't really legally own a gun here. Uh, guns are not legalized. Uh, it's, there's a large bureaucratic process to even have the ability to own one. I'm sure, of course, people have them illegally. Uh, and separately, the right to um, self-preservation is, is a law and it is a right that Ukrainians are given under the Constitution. But that does not tie into something like the Second Amendment, which is uh, hotly contested in the United States. Um, the the weapon and the self-preservation or self-defense is uh, separate uh, in, in Ukraine, at least. Um, and if you look at like some uh, in the news over the past 30 years in Ukraine, uh, the largest acts of mass violence also didn't really involve guns either. Um, there's, you know, executions of journalists and political figures, but those are those happen through bombings. Those happen through kidnappings and uh, more, you know, much more violent and hands-on acts than they do guns, simply because it's just not, I don't know, uh, there has to be some, some further deep digging to do here. 
maybe it's not as accepted here to use guns to to commit crime. Uh, maybe it, it is part of the Ukrainian culture to have more hand-to-hand combat. I don't know. Like these are these are things that you have to really explore. But there's um, there has to be a reason why when someone gets to a point in their lives in the United States that they do choose to commit a mass crime, they are able to and they choose to reach for a gun. And this is at every step of the way, it is accessible to them and uh, in, in a way that in Ukraine, for example, it is not. Um, so I'm not saying that there's like a, some DNA difference at all between Ukrainians and uh, people in the United States. It's uh, the safeguards that are set up in place or lack thereof or just how how society functions. Um, I mean, as as individualistic as Ukraine and the United States are as countries and their ideals and uh, values, um, at every step of the way in Ukraine, just in, in our culture, in Ukrainian culture, it is uh, it is normal for you to constantly be checking in on your friends and family members. And no matter what, like even if you don't really like them, you're checking in on them and you want to know what they're up to. And people are pretty nosy when it comes to their close ones in Ukraine. So it, it doesn't it shouldn't, in theory, get to a point where someone is uh, writing a manifesto, uh, a white supremacist manifesto secretly in the basement and has access to assault rifles and then has access to make a plan to go ahead and, and kill people in a closed area. Um I, I, this is not based on facts or any research that I've done, but it's like the mental uh, sort of uh, gymnastics that I, I do to try to understand why there does exist this difference between not yeah. just the United States and Ukraine, but also other countries. Yeah, but I think too, I, I don't, you don't, I don't think it needs to be anything statistical. I just think it's, I think that it's clear enough. W- one, you cited earlier the, the Ukrainians who come here who are less safe than they are in Ukraine, and then two. They're just people in Ukraine who are not killing each other this way. I live in Ukraine part time, you know, and I pay attention to the local news. So I know. Um, but it, it always is a question about my safety. And I tell people that, you know, even in Ukraine with what's happening right now, a cruise missile will get you in this current war environment before a handgun will. And given that Ukraine has more, you know, um, you know, air defense systems, um, that's getting, you know, better and better by, by the month. But Latasha, before we move on to the next segment, you travel a lot. What, what do you think it is? Because, you know, when I think about it, it's I think it goes back to white supremacy. Right. I mean, I think it goes back to this whole era of our, our culture about, you know, about guns. Now, I do think that we have this history of you know, militias, right? I, I, which I get, and we have this, and I am somebody, I don't mind people bearing arms. I don't think you should have an AR-15. You know, I don't think that, you know, I, I'm, I don't have a problem with people going hunting, but I'm curious, where do you think this comes from? Why can we, <laughs> Natasha, in, you know, you know, born, raised here, like go to America, but we were born into this country that, goes to the gun so quickly as Marina mentioned in her comments. Well, let's say, I mean, let's, let's talk about kind of the very, I think there's two things. So one, I want to talk about kind of the foundational 
kind of creation of the nation and what are the tools that were used to do that. Like there was, there were people already in this nation. There were indigenous people of, 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 of multiple backgrounds, um, of first, um, um, first peoples that were already here. And so what was used to displace, to oppress, to commit genocide on them because i because i i'm raising this because i want us it's you know we're looking at what is happening in russia and the genocide that is happening there but america still has not answered for its own genocide that the truth of the matter is the the foundation of this nation um was in a similar fashion around um a group of people were literally targeted because of who they were and where they were right they were inhabitants of the land and there was a genocidal attack on you can fix it up and call it treaties whatever you want to call it right but the truth of the matter is what happened to them is mass displacement mass um destruction of of their communities and their land um and a justification that i think that's where we come similar um to what i think is happening even in the ukraine that there's this justification that i that i quite frankly believe is all rooted in white supremacy. I think that the two things that make those parallel around kind of the foundation and the founding of America and what's happening, even what we're seeing in Eastern Europe right now is that the tools for oppression have always been a violence, dominance, the threat of violence, right? In force that, I mean, that's just, that's the, that's the, that's the cocktail. Um, that's the cocktail. And so I'm, I'm raising that because I think that part of, you know, what we see in the U.S. is that in the in the U.S. for whatever the the for whatever reason, I think that I mean, I think part of it is because I think how the the land was inhabited. Um, I think that, that what you also had is you had a renegade group of people who moved as individuals. And so when they say the wild, wild west. You know, that was a particularly accepted approach of the wild, wild west. And so there was, there is this infatuation. I don't think that, you know, we think, I, this is probably going to be unpopular what I say, but I I don't know if the core issue is guns in itself. The, the core issue is actually what motivates the guns. And that is this notion of dominance and oppression. I agree. I agree. And, and I agree with you. And, I agree. And the justification. Mm-hmm. And so the guns, you know, in, in, in this nation, it has started where white men have the, not only authority to have guns, but to use them indiscriminately to to kill people, um, whether they threaten them or not. And there's a justification in the system that has actually protected them um, historically. And so I think what you're seeing is as the and as for the as far as the U.S. is as the nation becomes more diverse, I think that there's still this uh, attachment um for for white control to be supported and guaranteed by by violence and by guns or the threat of violence. And so in many ways that parallels does that not parallel with what is happening um in the Ukraine right now. That the that the country that says we have the most guns, right? We have the biggest army, we're the with with the bullet, we're just gonna roll in your country. We're just gonna roll in your country and take your people out. We're just gonna roll in your country and decide that you're not a valid state, that you don't have sovereignty. We're just going to roll in and take lives. So while there are some distinctions, right, I think I think the point that I'm trying to make is the core of this is centered around 
human oppression and this notion that political dominance it becomes validated within the political framework that in yeah. some way what we have done is we've given license to whoever the bully is that got the most guns, got the biggest guns, got the mm-hmm. biggest bombs. And in some way they wind up being the leaders on the security council and some way they wind up being the leaders in terms of the economic piece, because what we have done is we have actually romanticized dominance as a form of power. Right. And we've given license I mean, even the concept of war is insane. I mean, of course, people could, we could talk about diplomacy and X, Y, Z. I got it. But the whole notion that there is a bomb that was created and was dropped only by one nation, right, that actually disintegrated flesh in thin air, like you, it destroyed everything living. Like, that's insanity. It is insane yeah. that we've got, we're going to work out our human conflict by which group can kill the, the most people, Right. It is yeah. that our power is rooted in that. So there's a larger conversation that I don't think just even rests with the leaderships of nation states. Unfortunately, I think the majority of people have accepted that as a valid, a valid power that nation states should be able to wield and use against the world. And so I, I, I'm hoping that there is a new sense of diplomacy that is not just just fueled by this threat of dominance and fear and damage. You know, where that will come from, you know, I, I think people, I think there's that, that's why there's some right. movements. So I want, yeah, so I want to start going into my final segment, which deals with this conversation about U.S. white supremacy and Russian colonialism. And so I especially am excited about the both, to talk to you about this because, um, uh, I want to talk to you both about how you understand U.S. white supremacy and Marina with you, uh, Russian, colo- Russian colonialism, and see if you see any similarities between what, what um, Moscow is doing against uh, Ukraine and how it's operated with its neighbors, as well as how the United States has operated within its borders and outside of them. And so um, I think this would be a great conversation where we have, a, you know, you know, uh, black activists here and, you know, and the Ukrainian activists uh, talking about what it looks like for black people and Ukrainians to fight these systems of oppression together. And so people often ask me, why am I so passionate about Ukraine? And I often tell them that as a student of, of Ukraine, as somebody um, actively taking up Ukrainian lessons and I've studied Russian colonialism so i know it very well and i also come from a country where i've studied my own country's oppression and i think that's one of the fundamental problems with u.s foreign policy makers that focus on any part of the world but since we're talking about russia in particular we have this very healthy appetite about lecturing democracy to others you know to, to russia and to others and listen trust me they need it um but where I think the failure comes in is that our foreign policy against Russia and against China and all these other places aren't as strong because we aren't putting ourselves in the process of rehabilitation mm-hmm. of our own oppressive systems. And so it goes back to what you said, Latasha, that we have romanticized this form of domination without really considering the fact that America you know, from the mindset of many of the policymakers here don't see themselves as participants in it. And so when you, you know, and and, and so I want to really go to 
uh, a, you know, to someone last year who I think really fleshes this out. And so, you know, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine back in 2002, the Kenya's ambassador to the UN delivered a really impassioned speech calling out Russia over its illegal uh, invasion. And I just want to play a snippet of what he had to say. This situation echoes our history. Kenya and almost every African country was birthed by the ending of empire. Our borders were not of our own drawing. They were drawn in the distant colonial metropoles of London, Paris, and Lisbon, with no regard for the ancient nations that they cleaved apart. Today, across the border of every single African country live our countrymen, with whom we share deep historical, cultural, and linguistic bonds. At independence, had we chosen to pursue states on the basis of ethnic, racial, or religious homogeneity, we would still be waging bloody wars these many decades later. Instead, we agreed that we would settle for the borders that we inherited. But we would still pursue continental political, economic, and legal integration. Rather than form nations that looked ever backwards into history with a dangerous nostalgia, we chose to look forward to a greatness none of our many nations and peoples had ever known. And that's, there is a longer, that was part of a very uh, longer talk, but this speech and that particularly that snippet, it was played through the loops a lot and went viral at the beginning stages of the invasion last year. And so no, notice that he was talking about Russia, but he talked about these Western capitals, right? And just including in that. And, and so here's the here's a question I really want us to re- wrestle with in these final about 15 minutes of the show is, and I'm interested in what you think, Marina, because the EU and NATO are providing a great deal of support to Ukraine as they should. That need, it needs to be more. Uh, but these are also the same countries that colonize much of the global South and who Ukraine is struggling to get, you know, galvanized support from precisely because of that. So I'm just curious, how, how do you wrestle with this as somebody who not only is focusing on Ukraine, but you care about the equity in all of this? I do. I do. And it's uh, precisely because uh, I worked for the United Nations for for a while, most of my professional life, um, which is very short. Um, but I was I was there for the Kenyan ambassador's statement. And when I heard it, I, I couldn't believe my ears because that was the first time that um, someone such as the Kenyan ambassador, who is, by the way, an absolute legend, uh, a so beautifully well-spoken, so intelligent, uh, uh, an incredible diplomat. He's, you know, within the United Nations, just really well-known. Um, someone like him for the first time included Russia in the list of uh, colonizing nations, actually, um, because this is not a widespread thought. It was it was groundbreaking. And I, I really had hope after listening to that statement that this would... It would it would catch on, you know, that we would try we would finally come to terms with 
the world living in a post-colonial world and needing to grapple with all the consequences of this instead of you know brushing them some things under the rug because they're inconvenient or uh avoiding calling things by their name because they don't sound right or you know we should be focusing on this we should be calling out this and not that right now so but that didn't happen unfortunately um and it's still not really a widespread thought actually that um uh, the Russia is a is a colonizer. Um, this in in different circles that I'm in all the time, it's not really accepted. It's like, oh well, but I mean, we know what uh, colonialization is, but it, it, that doesn't fall into like what we're taught in high school. Um, we don't really get it. No, everyone's like, yeah, no, the United States and United Kingdom, yeah, colonizing bad, don't do it, you know. But when Russia enters a conversation, they're like, oh, no, that's different. That's the Soviet Union. Everyone lived so happily well together. You know, that's not colonialism at all. It's it's something different entirely. But that's not true. If you Yeah, we, we, we all live together in harmony and Jim Crow. I, I get it. So exactly. Exactly. And and, and slavery. Yeah. And it's not a coincidence that every time there is an instance of police brutality against uh, the black population of the United States or uh, uprisings um, such as Black Lives Matter, so on and so forth, something big happening uh, in the United States that involves racism and having to come to terms with the racism that still exists in the United States. It's not a coincidence that they show that same footage on Russian media and Russian news channels. And they say, look at them, look at the United States. They don't know what they're doing. They're, they're lost. It's a failed state. It's a failed nation. They can't, they can't hundreds of years later, they can't figure out how to end racism. They don't know what they're doing. But in Russia, we are all equal and we are not, we have nothing to do with racism and colonialism. We are not uh, perpetrators of this violence, which is why the global South turns to us for help in their dealing with the United States. This is why we're such good friends with the global South and why they trust us and why they depend on us and why we need to continue being strong, why we need to continue being on the Security Council, why we need to continue using our veto vote. We're protecting all of you. This is the messaging that goes out through Russian media and through Russian news that not only does the Russian population listen to, but also the global South, yes. Uh, because Russian media, funny enough, is very often translated into languages such as Spanish and, yeah. and Portuguese, and uh, it's tr- translated into uh, languages that have, you know, colonialist legacies ex- uh, as well, um, just so that they can uh, build this dichotomy, United States bad, Russia good, because we are not colonizers but this is you can easily break this down and i'm sure we don't have time there needs to be another podcast dedicated to this but it is um i'll end with just this uh a very very good uh i believe uh ukrainian philosopher writer activist volodymyr yermolenko he on his own podcast once uh broke it down in a very easy to digest way and said that there's two types of colonialization actually there's othering and there's assimilation. Uh, What happened in the United States was othering, the othering of the Native Americans. You exoticize them and you exclude them from the society that you're trying to build. And you say, those are the barbarians. We're building something new. We need to get rid of them somehow. These other people, they don't fit in here. Uh, This is othering. And then there's assimilation, which is what happened in the Soviet Union. You either assimilated 
into the society that was being built on the the creme de la creme uh, place in society and where everything was decided for you. You either assimilated into their rules, their laws, their vision and their goals and ideals, or you were disappeared <laughs> in many different ways. You were most likely you were um, sent off to die somewhere in Siberia, for example, or you were never heard from again. And to this day, your family doesn't know what happened to you. Uh, but it's still one thing. It's it's oppression. It's the colonialism. And uh, just because you, there's no reason to get into an argument about which one was worse or uh, right. when it happened uh, and yeah, why. Absolutely. It's the same thing. And we need to finally yeah. be naming it that way. Yeah. So, Latasha, what, what are your thoughts? I agree. I think it is. I think it's the I mean, I always go back to um, like my core mantra that our politics will not save us, our humanity. We keep framing these issues. You know, I think it's almost intentional that we we frame things in a way that politics in itself and policy in itself is going to change things. Then we're not then we don't have to be accountable to the human impact. Really, not really. Right. Um, in some ways, it's easier to strip out the humanity of the issue. Right. Um, and make it just be, for example, you know, I'll, let, me, let me take a, a, a Russia, for example. You know, we have created or they have created by their own um, by their own um, actions, this state that people see it as the, the big dark horse boogeyman as a nation state. Right. Um, but there are people um, within that nation state that uh, have that are human beings that have a desire to live free and liberated lives like the rest of us, that they themselves, um, the number of people that came out um, to protest what the nation was, what, what Russia was doing knowing that they could be, as you said, disappear, right? And so I'm, I'm raising that because I think sometimes when we, and I see the same thing in the U.S., that for all the critique that I have for uh, the U.S. has operated in ways as a nation state, you know, the, some of the most powerful, courageous, inspiring people I've ever met in my life are people who are in the U.S. And so my point is, the moment that we take people out of the element that they're not a part of the equation and, and it's just like it has to be the most the emotionless politics of what i need to get done for my power then i think that you have uh, you have there's so much that is lost in that process and there's so much that is you know I, I i hear people talk about war and you know it's interesting because i've seen where some people want to go to war and i'm thinking to myself you know this nation state did something in this nation state. And so now you want your country to go bomb. But who do you think is going to die? Somebody's mother, father, brother. Like there, there is, and there's, you know, there's some way that we've made the, the destruction of human life an okay um, casualty of, of, of not going along with my politics. And I think we see that on the local, I think we see that on the individual level. I think we see it on the collective level. You know, I think that there is some of the similarities that I, I think that you raised, um, that you both raised. I think that 
I just go back. I think colonialism, oppression, oppression is oppression. It comes in different forms, but oppression is oppression. That the whole notion that one group of people or one person has greater human value than any other person is that not the is that not the problem with every form of oppression that we see and and be able to dominate that? And so, I think that there has to be I there needs there's a new conversation, real that we've got to have that that when we're thinking about how do we restore people's value of humanity in itself within the context and that the nation state is to serve the interests and the needs of humanity, not vice versa, because some way we've created, and I think colonialism, I certainly point at colonialism for doing that and some other institutions as well, but this notion that the nation state in some way, you know, even I think about what, what, um, what, uh, JFK said, "Not don't ask what um, uh, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I, that's never set well with me. <laughs> like, I'm like, at the end of the day, this isn't about the, the, the advancement of the nation state. This is about building a nation state that will serve the interests of its people, right? How do we create that nation state? And so that's a different kind of, and we've got to stop accepting this frame that in some way the the, the, the the social political state right is is it has the value and the ability to kill people at will to preserve itself that has to be unacceptable yeah i agree with you and so i'm happy that we have this conversation i want to close by saying that the reason one of the reasons why i'm happy that i brought the two of you together is that i feel like you both have the intellectual bandwidth and the humanity to really work through these things and so with rasm i'll tell you one of the things uh you know your organization marina that really impressed me i was invited to by dora who's a, the president uh to to facilitate conversations uh about how Ukrainians can help other communities who are facing different types of oppression. And I just really appreciate the fact that the Ukrainians were so willing to engage in that. And that's something that I found consistent with my experience of just living in Ukraine. And one of the reasons why I decided to devote my time to this particular uh, country, because I found an openness in the Ukrainian people who in many conversations found a similarity in me. Now, mind you, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, the largest black city in the United States. And I'm, you know, a resident, longtime resident of Brooklyn, New York. And I'm thinking, okay, this, these quote unquote white people see some similarities in me and it shocked me, but then I did more research and I realized essentially that the ways in which Russians talk about Ukrainians, especially the way that Putin talks about Ukrainians, he looks at them like they're white trash. Like the, and, and, and I use that word, that wording very specifically because the way in which he minimizes a Ukrainian, I never, in my very naive mind, I never thought that someone, that groups of people who quote unquote look white would treat each other that way. But I realized that there's levels to that in Europe, right? I learned, I know that now because I'm a student of the region, I'm a student of Ukraine, but it took me a while to realize that. And so my, I was very much focused on the oppression of my own community. But then when I started traveling, Ukrainians really were drawn to me 
because I did the work to understand particularly what their system of oppression meant for them. But it's also not just Ukraine. It was also in Central Asia. It was also in the Caucasus. When I was in Georgia, uh, the Caucasian, you know, the Caucasian, the real Caucasians, right from the Caucasus mountains, uh, people were telling me, hey, you know, we are considered they're, you know, black like you. That was something else that that freaked me out. And then also when I went to Central Asia, you can you can be from Uzbekistan and try to get a job in Moscow and you're racially profiled at a similar rate that black people are racially profiled here in the United States of America. And so what I and so that's how my approach to this country shifted, because of what you talked about, Latasha, the human the human element. If I wanted to figure out Kremlin politics and do all this other stuff that everyone else d- did, I could have done that. But what draws people to my work is that I convene these types of conversations so people could really understand who we are as people, because when we are at our best, like the three of us are talking right now, we don't like any of this shit because it all impacts and hurts us, right? You know, we all are dealing with our struggles. And so I wanted this image in this screenshot to really reflect what it means when people really do the work to care about each other because in America, you know, with the work that you're doing, Latasha, and I've been on a number of, you know, bus rides with you traveling around the country and you fighting for, you know, black liberation, you know, and, and, and but but that liberation liberates the, the, the country. And same thing for Ukraine. You, you know, you say you're, liber- you know, the Ukrainian liberation liberates the rest of Europe. And I just want I'm, I'm happy that we're able to facilitate a conversation where we, where we can begin to talk about what that actually looks like, because it's really about the people. And we don't do that enough. And so when Ukrainians ask me, you know, when, when they say, well, Terrell, we're so happy that you're in this war and you're doing reporting. That's why I do it. I talk about the human element. And I also talk about how these Ukrainians have conversations with me about their oppression. And we open up and have dialogues. That's what draws all the eyes to the work that I do. And I'm actually going back again to Ukraine to do military reporting. That's what I'm going to be doing, Marina. So um, if I'm and um, I'm having a number of conversations with some people and, you know, um, it'll be uh, up and coming. But for the next year and a half that I'll be in Ukraine. This is going to be ground zero for me to talk about how we how all how this very tragic really genocidal war um, using this as an opportunity to where we can really build these relationships with one another, because I really think Latasha and you, Marina, um, you have a lot in common and you're both fighting different types of supremacy. We call it white supremacy in America, but I wrote an article in the, in the Washington post that called what Russia is doing Russian supremacy and a lot of the traditional talking heads really got angry at me. And ironically, the only people who had my back were the Ukrainians. No, really, really, it was. It was the Ukrainians, it was the Central Asians, and it was other black people because in our current academic structures, you're right, Marina, it really just came of late where people started looking at Russia and colonialism. And it was actually the minorities 
right? The people who suffered under Russian colonialism that saw Russia this way, because a lot of the thinking that, that really pervades policy towards Russia comes from people who study Russian in St. Petersburg and Saratov and in Moscow, and they have this nostalgia, right? Remember what the Kenyan best did? Like, you know, so much nostalgia that 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 was really um, centering Russia as this kind of oasis of ethnic diversity, whereas America, you know, it was, you know, this, this country was born off of brute violence, right? You know, Ukraine and none of these people entered the union uh, voluntarily, you know, they refer to it as the Soviet Union, but it was more of the uh, 15 colonies. But at any rate, I want to thank you both for coming on the show and really beginning a conversation about what this type of uh, about what this can really look like when black people, black activists and Ukrainians come together and have these types of conversations. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. And I'm so happy to be in conversation with both of you. And hopefully we will continue to talk about this issue and make a world a little bit more peaceful, a little more just, and a little bit more joyous. I concur. Thank you so much, Latasha and Terrell. Thank you both for for being interested, for, for speaking um, every day uh, about the truth. I, I think that's ultimately what's important here. Um, and I'm always really grateful to be in the presence of people like you. Uh, it makes me feel like I'm not alone. And I, I likewise, Terrell, when you tell your stories of speaking to people about your experiences in Ukraine and they're like, that happened? They did what? They said what? That's how they, they interacted with you. I'm also in Ukraine, like, um, telling people, Ukrainians, how interested the world is in Ukraine now, and they still don't believe it. But, you know, tomorrow I'm going to meet up with my friends and partners and and uh, just people all around and tell them that I had this podcast conversation with the two of you and they're going to be shocked, but in a good way. Thank you for listening to our show this weekend. This has been another great episode of Black Diplomats. We will return next week and um, have a good week. Signing off.